So Douglas, we're recording this episode a little late because I've had a rather calamitous trip to the US. It took 44 hours, I had three different delayed planes, and I caught COVID. That is indeed a calamitous trip. It is. (laughs) But at least it will put you in the mind to empathise with our guest today, who is Peter Abelard, who is a 12th century philosopher who wrote an autobiography called, fittingly enough, A History of My Calamities. And if you think your trip was calamitous, wait until you hear about his life. Oh, that's interesting. I don't actually know much about Abelard, apart from that he's one of the many, many medieval philosophers whose name begins with A. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So Peter Abelard is important in philosophy. Well, you're the philosopher, so you might be able to better uh, inform me here. But I think Peter Abelard is important in philosophy because he's basically an early logician. So he does a lot in his early life about this idea of universals, which is basically this idea of like, right, humanity, whiteness, things like this. Do these exist in reality or are they just abstract concepts? That's basically it, right? Mm -hmm. And Abelard is on the school that says something like humanity is an abstract concept, right? It's just a word we talk about. It doesn't really exist. But to my mind, as a non-philosopher, that is the least interesting thing about Peter Abelard. <laughs> um, he, he actually had a very, very, very interesting active life um, within the academy of the 12th century. So I thought we could use his um, interesting active life up to and including being castrated as a consequence of a very famous love affair with another philosopher called Heloise. Yes, so I know that he uh, had some trouble with his father-in-law. Yes, yes, that is to put it uh, somewhat mildly. But it is a very, very famous love affair, right? He has a love affair with his sometime student, Heloise, who is also a very gifted philosopher. And as a consequence, Mm -hmm. he is castrated and she has to become a nun. Um, And the story of their love affair is famous in the Middle Ages and in their own days. Songs are written about it. uh, Chaucer writes about it. These are very, very famous people. Uh, These are kind of like philosophical rock stars in their day. So rather than talking about the philosophy of Abelard, I want to talk about his much more interesting rock star lifestyle. Ah, Okay, I guess we can talk about that. (laughs) Okay, so for today we're going to be using mostly his autobiography, A History of My Calamities, to kind of tell the life story of him and his famous lover. His autobiography is like a wonderful read. He is such a catty, gifted writer. (laughs) Um, And it's just like really fun to listen to him moaning and bemoaning his enemies. So are are you ready to learn about this rock star of 12th century uh, medieval philosophy? Yeah, let's go for it. Peter Abelard is born round about 1079, in a place called Le Palat in Brittany, near the border with France. So this time Mm -hmm. Brittany is is separate from France. Mm -hmm. His father is basically a knight, um, and his father is educated pretty late in life. So as an adult, he learns letters and he really takes to it. So he decides to educate all of his children and takes a lot of effort to do this. Abelard, his first child, really, really takes to it and decides rather than following in his father's footsteps of becoming a knight, As he says it, he's going to uh, put in the sword for fighting with ideas. Ah. So he goes about and starts to be educated. He seeks out uh, tutors in Brittany. And we don't really know who he studied under, under his early life, other than uh, one named teacher who is Rosalind, who is a pretty controversial 
figure, actually. He was accused of heresy in 1092. It's quite easy to be accused of heresy in 1092, right? <laughs> yes, it is. And this is a theme that we will return to because, uh-huh. <laughs> because um, Avalard, much like his early teacher, will also be accused of heresy uh, several times. <laughs> <in this okay. laughs> but yeah, basically, we don't really know that much about his early life. Abelard doesn't really spend very much time focusing on it in his autobiography. After a couple of little bits of information about his early life, he starts his narrative as he arrives in Paris in 1100 to learn under a very famous logician philosopher called William of Champeaux. Mm-hmm. But he almost immediately gets into a dispute with William of Champeaux. They get into a public dispute in his lecture where Abelard tells us, shows to all the other students that William of Champeaux doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's only Abelard who understands logic. <laughs> He gets into this public dispute. He starts uh, a school to be a rival with William of Champeaux. Um, they have dueling schools in the Parisian area where they're trying to attract students. I, I have to ask, is the dueling literal? <laughs> no, it's very intellectual. So they uh-huh. will get into public debates with each other. They seem to send uh, students from each school to someone else, to the, the other opponents, where the student will like, disrupt the lecture. Uh, so, so, so it's really there's a, a type of guerrilla warfare in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. And we have to understand, of course, at this time, how teachers made their money is they charge students. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are teaching the same thing. They're both teaching the liberal arts. So mm-hmm. guerrilla warfare, but also a way to like undercut your business rival. Mm-hmm. Because if a student leaves your classroom, you lose money. And so making your rival seem like an idiot or disrupting the classroom is a really good way to attract students. So I, I have to ask, because I know later in history, if this will still be true, that, that kind of people's money is made off they have to rent a lecture hall or they have one in the bottom of their house and they are given permission to run lectures for, say, the ethics course and students will come and then they'll go to the university to take the exams. But it's all very regulated. Not everyone can do it. You need a position. You need uh, permission for the course and so on. This sounds like Avalard was just like, I'm just going to set up a school. So it sounds very unregulated at this point in time. Sure, sure. So this is before the establishment of the universities. It was a, a, a free-for-all, right? So okay. if you were, if you had um, a following, you could set up a school, they would start paying you, uh, and you could make, if you were good, quite a lot of money out of doing mm-hmm. this. But there was mm-hmm. basically, yeah, a, apart from maybe uh, the structures of the church, so you couldn't start up a school and say, I don't like Jesus. <laughs> but right. beyond that, you had quite a lot of freedom about where you start up a school. So for instance, in this period... Um, of his early life when he's dueling with William, Abelard will change the place he has his school three times, three separate times. So you start up in a place, you see if you can attract students, you move, you go to a different place, you try and attract students. I see. And a bit of a salesman too. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the reasons there are these public disruptions in William of Champeaux's lecture is we can see that as a way of him attracting students, right? He's Mm -hmm. very publicly making having this intellectual duel with this person because it is a way to increase your own fame and to make you seem like a much more competent philosopher Mm -hmm. than your opponent. Um, But he becomes sick in 1108 and has to return to Brittany uh, briefly. And um, I want to just quote from Abelard here because I think it gives us an insight into his character. So he says he has to return to Brittany because he's sick, and this is how he describes it. 
I was away from France for several years, bitterly missed by everyone who cared about dialectic. <laughs> okay, so I have a question to ask because so there's this thing, particularly with historic philosophers. I'm going to say with historic philosophers, where there's just such inflated egos. So you think about Descartes. Descartes writes at the beginning of the Meditations, certainly a very important book, but he writes at the beginning of the Meditations to a church about how important, like a religious text, he has managed to produce and how earth-shattering and groundbreaking it is. And one way to look at that is that this was just what you did, right? You're like, they can't all have been this self Centered. It's just what you did. It's how you promoted yourself. And then another way to look at it is, well, maybe the reason that we're talking about people is partially because they were very good at selling themselves. They had overinflated egos and they told everyone how great they were. And we know, unfortunately, in our modern world that that works. Right. Yeah. But- yeah. And, <laughs> and I think specifically with Abelard, I think he is definitely someone who his ego helps make him famous but his inability to shut his mouth also leads to a lot of his calamities. Mm-hmm. So definitely a man who is 100% a very gifted philosopher, right? He, mm-hmm. he develops new ideas in the field of logic and in theology, um, and he is famous in his time for this. He is a very well-respected teacher for large chunks mm-hmm. of his life, but also massive, massive ego. And this comes through again and again and again in his correspondence with Heloise and also with his autobiography. He, he is very aware of how gifted he is as a philosopher. I see. Can I ask you, uh, it, does Eloise have a similarly inflated perception of herself? We will get to we'll Eloise to at the moment of, of their affair, because now they um, have not met each other yet. Because mm-hmm. at this well, moment... She's substantially younger than him. Yeah, well, again, we will, we will get to the debate around Eloise when, uh, when we come to the affair. But, but just now, he's returning to Paris... Um, he decides sometime around this time, around about 11.13, he wants to actually go on and further his studies. So he hears of this man who is also famous, a man called Ansem of Lyon, and he mm-hmm. shows up at his school in Lyon and decides he wants to study under Anselm. And this is how he describes his teacher, Anselm. And I want to quote from him at length here, because again, I think it gives you a wonderful insight into the ego of Abelard and also the rivalries that existed among these, these scholars in the 12th century. This is about Anselm, his new teacher. Anyone who knocked on his door with a question went away more puzzled than before. Holding forth, he was a marvel to see. Answering questions, he was nothing. The man had a marvellous way with words, but they were devoid of logic and abysmal in sense. He was like a fire which fills the house with smoke but gives no light. I started skipping his lectures more and more, which annoyed some of his favourite students, who somehow imagined that I had no respect for this great master of ours. So he, he's either a Saki bastard or he lacks somewhat in uh, self-reflection. <laughs> yes. I, so having read the book, I cannot quite work out if the line, um, who somehow imagined that I had no respect for a great master of ours, I can't quite get out if he has no self-reflection or if he's making a joke. Because he definitely yeah. does make jokes throughout his autobiography. And I can't quite decide, it's quite difficult sometimes to figure out, is he being snarky 
or is he just lacking in self-awareness? Because mm-hmm. there are moments where he definitely is being snarky and there are moments where he definitely is missing in self, self-awareness. Right. It's famously, he, he gets himself into a lot of trouble. Hmm. Uh, the... <laughs> well, well, may... well this, this particular one, he actually gets himself into a bit of trouble here as well, ah. but also increases his fame. So um, these students who come to him and say, you don't like Anselm very much. And he's like, where did you get that idea? And they challenge him to do uh, a sermon, basically, exegesis on a particularly difficult part of scripture. And they say, we're going to challenge you to do this. And he says, I will only take up the challenge if you only give me 24 hours. And they say, but that's impossible. And he says, no, 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 I can do it. And so we're told 24 hours go by. He gives this gifted oration about this very difficult bit of scripture. um, And it is so wonderful that students from Anselm start flocking to hear his next, second and third lectures. And they're taking notes furiously. And at this point, Anselm, we are told, um, gets worried. Um, and to Abelard's mind, this is because he's attracting students away. To Anselm, it seems to be his stated excuse is, well, you're kind of my student and I'm, you're talking about theology. I'm worried people will think what you are saying is from me. Mm-hmm. And so he mm-hmm. bans him from Lyon. He kicks him out of Lyon. I see. And hilariously, this fight was so famous between them that in Lyon to this day, there are two streets, an Abelard Street and an Anselm Street, and they cross each other and go off in different directions. Yeah. All right. So I have to ask, how much of the story are we getting from only from the mouth of Abelard and how much of it is also appearing from sources that may not be one side or the other of this dispute? Well, so there are basically no sources that are neutral. Everyone is kind of split into pro and anti-Abelard camps. And for Mm -hmm. the particular instance we're talking about, it's pretty much just Abelard. But we do know that students were doing this a lot. So for instance, within a hagiography that survives of a saint called St. Goswine, we have an account of St. Goswine going to a lecture of Abelard's and disrupting it. So it's definitely, it rings true. And uh, w- whether whether Anselm was a gifted teacher or not, we, we don't know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, he must have been able to attract people, right? Because he is famous. But you, it, when you describe it where he says, oh yeah, I said, I oh, 24 hours, it's so hard. And then people flock to me. You're like, this sounds like the fake conversations people post on Twitter, where it's obvious it just oh, it sure. only happened in their mind. <laughs> so, I, so I think Abelard would have loved Twitter. <laughs> Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, he's definitely someone who'd be constantly up at like 3 a.m. getting in Twitter fights with other philosophers. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like he would uh, be uh, too online. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, but we should remember Anselm because he comes back into the story in the future. But he's kicked out of Lyon. He goes back to Paris and sets up another school. And this is where Heloise enters our story. So you were asking about Heloise. So who is Heloise? Mm -hmm. So Heloise is actually, it's kind of a bit of a mystery. Her early life is pretty much unknown to us. Mm -hmm. But at the time that he is returned to Paris, so this is somewhere around maybe 1115 or 1116, Heloise is living with a man called Fulbert, who is a canon of Notre Dame. And this is Mm -hmm. either her uncle or her father. We're not quite sure. Um, In the story, it's told to be her uncle, but obviously in history, there have been plenty of priests with quote-unquote 
nieces oh, and yeah, nephews. Oh, yeah, nieces and nephews. Yeah. yeah. So it's not clear. <laughs> By this time, Heloise is already, in her own right, famous for her studies. Um, okay. She has a reputation as a bit of a scholar. She can, for instance, it seems, read Greek and Latin. Greek mm-hmm. is a language that Abelard doesn't seem to have. Um, it wasn't usual for people to learn Greek and even a little bit of Hebrew at this time. And Fulbert decides he wants to encourage her studies and hires her a tutor. And she hires mm-hmm. him Abelard. So Abelard okay. is this very famous philosopher. Heloise yeah. is also a philosopher in the same kind of philosophical tradition. She is also a logician. Mm-hmm. She is also actually what we would now describe as a Stoic, but that's not a word she would have recognised, but she's very mm-hmm. into ancient Stoic philosophers. So Abelard is hired and is completely blown away by both her beauty and her intellect. And Mm -hmm. he says, yes, I'll study with her. I'll be her tutor. But it doesn't go to the plan of Fulbert. Abelard tells us in his autobiography that, and I quote, my hands wandered more often to her breasts than to her books. Ah. So they they begin begin an affair. As I say, you said there's quite a big age gap between us. So this is actually where it becomes a little bit difficult to tell. Mm -hmm. So traditional scholarship has said that at this time, Heloise would have been 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. However, more recent scholarship has kind of revised this estimate. So there are a couple of reasons to believe that she was actually a bit older, mm-hmm. not least of which is because she was already famous for her intellect. Mm-hmm. It seems not quite credible that a 16 or 17 year old would have been famous for her scholarship. Mm-hmm. So Recent scholarship has suggested that she's maybe in her mid to late 20s. Okay. Um, and so Abelard at this time would be in his early 30s. So there is a bit of an age gap, but not as much as traditionally mm-hmm. you will see in paintings. I tend to go toward this idea that she's in her mid to late 20s, not just because of their fame about scholarship, but also because she seems to deal with the affair in quite a mature manner, at least according to her letters and to Abelard. Mm-hmm. And that would, again, suggest to me that she's actually a little bit older than this. So I, do have, a, I have a few questions here, because we're talking about the uh, 1100s. So we're talking about a, a period, right, that a lot of us don't have a good mental image of. A lot of the periods that we talk about, we see represented in the media, we learn about, are either later or er- earlier, right? We're, like, right in the period at one point was kind of called the Dark Ages, right? Because there's a lack of information about it. So we have a situation, we have a young woman who's known for her intellect and uh, we have a famous or infamous logician who's who's willing to tutor her. Uh, And we also possibly have a woman who's in her late 20s and unmarried and her father is or her uncle is encouraging academic pursuits. Now, if, if we were, uh, say, 200 or 400 years later, these things would seem very odd. Do we know if, this is, if there's a more liberal attitude at the time or if this is unusual? Basically, we don't really know how okay. love affairs or female scholars were treated in the 12th century because pretty much for this time period, Heloise is our only extant example. Okay. So the, the letters they send later in life to each other are used often to try and study 12th century relationships and how people mm-hmm. related in relationship. But because we don't have any many other ways to investigate it, it's really unclear to what extent Abelard and Heloise's relationship was typical of the time or if they were somehow thinking differently from their contemporaries. What I would say, though, is at the time, sleeping with your student was frowned upon even more so than it is 
today. Okay. <laughs> so at the time, it was considered basically impossible to be a good teacher and to be married or have a lover. And so while in the 12th century, there are still clergy who are marrying, right? There are mm -hmm. celibacy isn't a universal rule yet. For someone of Abelard's position as a teacher, is expected that they remain celibate for life. So this affair is very scandalous, but not just because he's having sex with a student, but because of it's discovered it could potentially destroy his career. Mm -hmm. Okay. As to Heloise, Heloise, no doubt, is unusually intelligent just as a person. Mm -hmm. So as I've already mentioned, in later life, we know she can speak Latin, Greek, and a little bit of Hebrew. In mm -hmm. the 12th century, it just wasn't considered necessary to learn Hebrew at all. This is a very intellectually curious person. Mm -hmm. So I would say that Heloise is unusual in that she is clearly a very, very gifted intellect in her own right. And again, that gives us this issue of like, well, how typical is she? I don't know. But Fulbert is, it, it doesn't seem unusual that she's getting this tutor, right? There's nothing in the history of calamities that suggests that this was an unusual move on Fulbert. Okay, so just uh, again an issue that we just don't have many records of this time, and so this is the example we have. Yeah, because one, people weren't really writing autobiographies, and two, uh, people weren't really thinking about love uh, when yeah. they were writing it down. Like, obviously, in real life, they must have been thinking of love, but it wasn't a thing they were writing about, really. And uh, the love here, actually, of this affair actually has an effect on Abelard's teaching. So we're told mm -hmm. he becomes pretty much lovesick. So he can no longer teach appropriately. He starts actually penning hit songs. So he becomes something <laughs> something of the 12th century equivalent of a pop artist uh -huh. um, writing songs about his love affair. And they become actually very popular in France at the time. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, and people get suspicious that this logician has suddenly become really into writing these love songs. Right, right. And, and eventually the affair is discovered by Fulbert sometime around 1117 or 1118. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, Fulbert is not particularly um, happy yeah. about, about, about this affair, not least of all because Heloise is pregnant. Okay. There is a negotiation and uh, Peter Abelard agrees to marry Heloise, but on the condition that it be secret. So it has to be a secret marriage because, as I've said, if it was discovered that he had married someone, this would basically destroy his, his career as a scholar. He wouldn't be able to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they return to Brittany. They have a son called Petrus Astrobalius, who is actually a bit of a celebrity name, like we would recognise it in the 21st century, because he is named after the instrument, the Astroblade. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, this like, Hint of, um, of celebrity never changes, right? It's a slightly strange uh -huh. name. But they return from Brittany after the birth of their son and they marry in secret. Um, everything goes wrong after this. This is where we're getting up to his major calamity. So Fulbert is, seems to have been annoyed by the scandal that seems to be circling around Heloise. So starts telling people that actually there was a secret marriage, making it public knowledge. Heloise is unhappy about this because it will affect Abelard's career and denounces him and basically says he's telling lies. I have never been married to Abelard. There seems to be some mm. kind of abuse happen at this moment, um, or at least Abelard hints that Heloise undergoes some form of physical abuse. And so to get her out of that okay. situation, he puts her in a nunnery. He's very clear at this mm -hmm. point that he's not making her a nun. He is just putting her in a nunnery for her own safety. Right. However, Fulbert and Heloise's family seem to misunderstand 
what is happening here and believe that what Abelard is actually doing is trying to get rid of Heloise. He's trying to make her a nun and dissolve the marriage. And this is where we get to his ultimate calamity and a thing I think Peter Abelard is most famous for, which is Mm -hmm. being castrated. Yes. Um, So what I think I should do here is because this is such a central part of Abelard's life, I thought we could listen to the man himself describe his castration. But when her uncle heard about it, he, his kinsmen, and connections thought I had come up with an easy trick to disentangle myself by making her a nun. Then their anger reached its peak and they plotted their revenge. One night, as I slept peacefully in an inner room of my lodgings, they bribed one of my servants to let them enter and proceed to wreck the savage vengeance that has made the whole world shudder. They cut off the parts of my body with which I committed the wrong they complained of, and then they fled. The only two who could be caught were blinded and had their genitals cut away, including the man who, while still in my service, was led by greed to betray me. Okay, so this is uh, considered... Uh, clearly a serious crime because and and one in which an eye for an eye is yeah carried out but i guess it, he's he's oddly unemotional about what must have been both a physically extremely painful experience extremely dangerous mm. um and an emotionally extremely traumatic experience after this he decides to join an abbey um, and he makes it very clear that the reason he's joining an abbey is not because of any love of god per se but because of a deep shame about his physical condition so it does seem to have had a massive psychological effect on him it creates a complete change in his life so he goes from being a a secular scholar within the cathedral schools uh, to becoming a monastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also actually changes his philosophical career. So up till this point, Abelard is mainly known as a logician. After this point, he will mainly study theology. So there mm-hmm. does seem to be a break mm-hmm. in his life where there is definitely a way to talk about a pre-castration and post-castration Abelard in pretty much every aspect of his life. But yeah, you're right. He is in this quite mm-hmm. unemotional about it. In part, this is because I think that in his mind, he frames it within his autobiography as a punishment for arrogance. So before this, he's talking about how I was very prideful, and obviously God cuts you down when you're prideful. And within his own framework, he seems to see this event as a almost a punishment from God. He creates an internal theology about this, where he's making sense of this very traumatic event as a, 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 a kind of sign from God. I suppose this in some ways has echoes of uh, an episode that we did separated from this point by only a few hundred miles and a few hundred years, which is the uh, the Lindisfarne uh, letters, where a terrible act performed by other people who intended to do it was instead reduced to or seen through uh, an explanation in which God was in fact the one causing the action. Yeah, and I think I think actually it is an understandable psychological thing to do, right? You're you're making meaning out of what must have been a very horrific and traumatic event for you. Like clearly, because 
in Abelard's case, it changes his entire life, the entire way he meant to spend his life. He changes mm-hmm. completely after this event. He talks about how much shame he had. Um, he even talks about how disrupting it was because his students came to see him, and he seems to have found this awful. It seems mm-hmm. that in the aftermath of it, he wanted to just disappear. Right. And so he goes and joins a monastery. Um, yeah, so so yeah, I think I think there is this, um, it, it's a maybe a universal human instinct to take these traumatic events and try and give them some kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we're reading his autobiography, right? right? The act of writing an autobiography is creating meaning out of life. And, and I guess he's also in a position where it sounds like the, the person in many ways mostly responsible for this, which is Eloise's uncle, is not punished. Mm. Yeah, he gets away. So it seems to be that he is fined, maybe. Mm-hmm. So he seems to lose some property um, after the event. But yeah, he's not punished in the way that his servant is, right? He's not castrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the family of Heloise pretty much get away with yeah. it. Um, so yeah, so again, you have this idea where he's had this traumatic experience. The people have basically got away right. with it. So you create meaning around it, or he seems to be creating some kind of greater meaning around this event. Yeah, in a situation where I guess he doesn't really have access to any kind of justice. Yeah, and it must have, it clearly was a very awful event for him. He kind of forces Heloise to go into a nunnery at the same time. Okay. So um, it seems that people are urging her not to go in, but she is also affected quite badly Mm -hmm. by this event. Um, It's told that she, she takes the veil with tears in her eyes. Um, in later life, she will talk about how, even at this point where she is a well-respected abbess, mm-hmm. um, she will talk about how the only reason she did it was because of her love for Abelard, not a love of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so she joins a nunnery. He joins a very nearby monastery, uh, this big monastery, uh, the Abbey of St. Denis, which is the main royal uh, monastery. Um, and they are physically quite close to each other at this point. Um, but they are in separate um, monastic mm-hmm. communities. And as I say, there is a complete change in Abelard's thought at this point. He becomes much, much more interested in theology and philosophy. And sometime in this period, he uh, writes a book on the Trinity called uh, Theologia Sumi Boni. Ah, the Trinity. <laughs> yes, which becomes the next source of the next great calamity in Abelard's life. And in fact, within his own narrative, he says that this calamity was even worse for him than the calamity of castration. Okay. What's happening here is he writes this book on theology. It seems to go over quite well. Mm-hmm. He's attracting students back to him. But then he hears about two men, Albrecht of Reims and Lutov of Novera, mm-hmm. hear about the publication of this book. Mm-hmm. And they do not like what they read. So these two men had studied under William of Champeaux and Anselm of Lyon. Ah. And they are basically carrying on the grudge of the people who supervised their initial research. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't like what they hear. They decide to convene a trial in a place called Sozons in 1121 of heresy against Abelard. They're saying this book is heresy. Mm-hmm. And so they decide they're going to call him up and, and condemn him for what they see as a heresy within this book. Um, this is actually quite a dangerous moment in Abelard's life. So we're told he arrives at the city Mm -hmm. um, with his followers and the people are kind of angry. He's kind of worried about what's going to happen. And he has reason to be worried. So in 1114, in the same city, two people had been executed because they had been accused of heresy. 
and his original teacher, Rosalind, had been condemned in the same city in 1092. Mm -hmm. So there is a history, a personal history connected to Abelard to be wary of these heresy trials. Um, Abelard takes this opportunity to kind of grandstand again. So as he's waiting for the deliberations of the people who are uh, conducting his heresy trial, he starts to do public lectures and starts to get the people on his side mm -hmm. by explaining his book to them and why he doesn't think it's heresy. And we have this uh, really funny section in his book uh, where we are told uh, that Albrecht of Reims comes to one of these public lectures mm -hmm. and decides to try and condemn him. And so basically what happens is that Albrecht of Reims says, um, you, you're doing heresy, and Abelard says, no, 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 St. Augustine also agrees with me. And Albrecht of Reims says, well, where does he say that? Uh -huh. And Abelard opens his own book and points to the page where he's quoted. Mm -hmm. Augustine, proving that um, Albrecht has not read the book. He ah. in the book. And so we're told Albrecht is given this opportunity where he can either admit that he hasn't read the book mm -hmm. or say he disagrees with this great doctor of the church. Mm -hmm. And instead, in classic uh, academic fashion, he instead storms off in a huff. I see. Which I think is like this nice scene, right? Because it's, to me, working in a university, it's like, oh, I could imagine an academic doing that now. This seems very, very real <laughs> to me. But we're basically told that um, by Abelard's account that the council um, can't really find uh, any real reason to accuse them of heresy, but they do it anyway. So they basically strong arm um, the papal legate and who is there at the trial, and they basically manage to get him condemned from heresy. Mm -hmm. um, he is not allowed to speak in his own trial. All he can do is he's told he has to burn his book. And this is the event he says, this was more painful to me than the castration. Burning this book was more painful to me. And then in recompense, he has to read the Athanasian Creed. But again, there is more humiliation because the Athanasian Creed, we are told, in his time, it's something every schoolboy would have known. Mm -hmm. However, his enemies make a point of giving him it on a bit of paper, signaling to the crowd that, look, he's such a heretic, he doesn't even know this basic stuff. And so he feels completely humiliated. And when you say he burnt his book, right, this is a, a different time when it comes to how information is stored and uh, so on. Is this the copy of the book or is this a, a symbolic act? Oh, so it's definitely a symbolic okay. act. So he's burning the copy as a part of his... his because, like, the people have read it, right? right? So, yes, you're right. There aren't that many copies of it around. But it's obviously been sent out mm -hmm. or otherwise okay. um, they wouldn't have been able to start the heresy trial to begin with. Uh, so this is definitely a symbolic act. Mm -hmm. He's burning his copy of the mm -hmm. book to show that he is renouncing his heresy. Um, but it's, it's seen as... Humiliating, right? Because he's not allowed to answer any of the charges and he has to publicly, in public, right. burn this book and, and kind of admit that he had done heresy. It's interesting, right? Because uh, some, you know, people have a lot of discussions about free speech nowadays. But if you look back at kind of what it was that led to, you know, the idea that the government shouldn't be able to intervene on uh, you expressing opinions, it's stuff like this where they're literally the threat of violence is held over people um, and where grudges can be settled by saying, oh, well, they committed heresy. Yeah, yeah, and that seems to be what happens here, at least from Abelard's account. Um, it seems to be that they're holding a grudge against him from the time when he was in dueling schools with William of Champagne and Anselm of Lyon. 
Um, and yeah, you're right. It's the, the threat of violence that's held against him. Um, he's condemned in secret. He's not allowed to reply to any mm-hmm. of the charges. Um, he has to destroy his book. And he is sent um, away to a monastery. And this monastery is famous for being a place of wayward monks. Mm-hmm. So he's sent to this place to be, quote unquote, reformed. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be that his enemies go too far. There is some outcry within the circles about how far they went mm-hmm. against Abelard. He's allowed out of this reform monastery mm-hmm. very quickly. Okay. And he gets to return to St. Denis, where he carries on uh, with, with his philosophy. So although this is a very traumatic experience, um, it doesn't seem to have as many long-term... Because I think like now we have this idea of people being condemned of heresy, and what that means is they're thrown on the pyre, um, right? or they're killed. And definitely people are killed for heresy, but I think more common is what happens to Abelard here, which is they are forced to renounce, they're re- not allowed to teach, mm-hmm. they're put to somewhere to reform. Um, it's a process that um, definitely people are killed and definitely it's this awful experience. And as you say, Abelard does have the threat of violence hanging over his head. But I think in most cases, it was um, it was much less, I suppose, violent and much less permanent than I think a lot of us in the modern world tend to think about this time. So this is something, I mean, also that you see with, say, witch trials, where certainly people were killed in horrendous fashions, but also plenty of people were just humiliated. Mm, and I think it's a consequence of, like, Whig history with this idea that everything is progressively getting better. Because in the early modern period, heresy becomes a much more dangerous charge. Mm-hmm. And so there is this idea within like Victorian thinking that, well, if it was bad when Henry VIII was on the throne, it must have been even worse I than that. So this idea, this idea, right, of like it's positively medieval. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, when you look at it, the 12th century was in many ways much less violent time for a scholar mm-hmm. than, say, the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's this idea, tendency to think that as you go further back in time, things become more right. barbaric. Yeah, which isn't backed by history. Yeah, there are peaks and troughs, right? There are definitely periods of the Middle Ages where things are very violent, and then there are periods where it's much less so. And I think a good example here is Avalon, because he gets out mm-hmm. after a short period of time, and he gets to return to St. Denis, where he carries on his studies. Mm-hmm. He carries on his studies into theology, but he very quickly gets into trouble yet again. <laughs> he just can't keep himself out of it, can he? Well, this time he gets in trouble for a joke. Oh. Um, so he is, he is reading the Venerable Bede, and he comes across this passage of Bede, uh, where it says St. Denis, the patron saint of France, the patron saint of the monastery, um, Bede is contradicting the story that the monastery tells all its monks. And Abelard tells us he finds some fellow monks and he goes, isn't this funny? Bede is contradicting the story of our abbot. And the monks don't find it hilarious. <laughs> the, the monks find it, in fact, scandalous. Um, and they ask him, well, do you agree with it? And Abelard goes, well, I like Bede, yeah, I suppose. And the monks run away and tell the abbot and the abbot is horrified and it gets worse for Abelard because St. Denis is so close to the royal house. The abbot is like, not only have you uh, insulted our abbey, you're insulting the very nation of France. Ah. This is not this is not just bad for our abbey, it's treason. <laughs> oh, he's, he's getting all of the, yeah, one of each. Yes, yes. And this starts off a bit of a panic, Abelard. Abelard's like, well, it was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so Abelard is... It has to pull some strings with some people that he knows at the royal court. Mm-hmm. There's an arrangement made where the 
Abbot of St. Denis really doesn't want him to be at the Abbey anymore. The monks don't seem to like him. He doesn't really want to be at the Abbey anymore. So they have this compromise where they set him into the wilderness to start up his own little monastery, uh, which would become the Paraclete. So he's away from all the monks who hate him, <laughs> and he can go off and study philosophy on his own. So I guess um, even if, as the story is told, it's the accusation of heresy and the joke that leads to this, he can't have been overly popular before the incident happened. Yeah, so he... he Abelard is a very divisive figure mm-hmm. within the 12th century uh-huh. because he is... The people who like him are very, very loyal to him. Um, and the people who dislike him really, really dislike him. <laughs> he, he's um, the marmalade seems, of people. Yes, yes, definitely he's the marmalade of people. I mean, there's a story... Um, from another source, that when he goes to this abbey, this monastery, mm-hmm. um, where he's meant to be reformed, the abbot comes to him and tries to make this like, oh, well, don't worry, we'll reform you. And Abelard makes a quip against him that insults him. <laughs> and so the abbot hates him after that. Uh-huh. So <laughs> so he's definitely a man who's very quick of wit, and this will often, it seems, get in, mm-hmm. into, into a lot of trouble. But yeah, you're right, he's very divisive. I think also the thing that isn't mentioned in his autobiography uh, that is possibly worth talking about is that he is also this is a time where the church is not separate from the state mm-hmm. that a lot of these arguments he's having with people can be matched to political arguments that are being having within both the church and within both the the kingdom of france and mm-hmm. um, so for instance his great benefactor is a man called stephen de garland who is the archdeacon of notre dame and sometime chancellor of France. And it should be noted that um, when Abelard goes back to Brittany to, for sickness or to see his parents, this often seems to relate to times when Stephen de Garland is out of favour with the I see. Um, and of course, William of Champaul and some of Lyon are on the other side of the political divide of Stephen de Garland. So while um, Abelard is saying it was all about philosophy, they hated my ideas, mm-hmm. it's possible that, as you say, he's quite a divisive political right. figure as well. And and do we know anything about what politically the divide is about? Presumably it's not about nominalism for universals. Wouldn't that be good? (laughs) I I mean, honestly, a lot of the the stuff about the Trinity that was extremely, uh, you know, extremely actually divisive is almost as abstract. Well, so so basically, yeah, the political divide is between uh, people who support reform of the church, uh, led in later life by probably its most famous proponent, which is St. Bernard of Claveau, Mm -hmm. um, versus people who are against this reform of the church. So there's a period of a kind of almost reformation Mm -hmm. within the church that will lead to um, an enforced celibacy, lead to reform of the monastery. Mm -hmm. Um, And Abelard is, at least at this stage in his life, on the anti-reformist side of things. Um, whereas the people who are against him, so for instance, when he is condemned at um, in Cezanne in his heresy trial, the man who presides over it is a papal legate called Cardinal Cono of Palestrina, who is a leading proponent of reform. I see. So we are seeing these, there's a political divide mm-hmm. happening here that Abelard isn't quite going into. He's making it all about, oh, I just made a joke. Mm-hmm. But there's something, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not all just about nominalism <laughs> and universals, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, as I say, he is popular with the people he is popular with um, because 
He founds a school at the Paraclete in 1122, mm -hmm. and very quickly, uh, students flock to his school. Uh, but we're told at this time, it's not all good for him. He's away in the wilderness. He's just teaching and thinking about philosophy. But he tells us new enemies arise. And we are told his old enemies raised against me a pair of new apostles whose boasts were winning credit in the world. What is the left for him to be accused of? <laughs> well, it seems to be the same old thing, okay. right? He's continuing to work on theology. Uh -huh. He hasn't really repented. Uh -huh. um, and as I say, there might be a political dimension to this. But it gets so bad, he tells us in the autobiography, at this period in his life, he even thought about going to live among Muslims because surely he could not be prosecuted worse among the Muslims than he is in France. That means going to Spain at this yeah, point in yeah. time. Yeah, so he seems to have gone to Spain. To the extent to which he actually thought about doing this and to which extent he's doing this for hyperbole, uh -huh. um, it is, is, is probably a, a, a big boast, right? He's, he's saying this for you, the reader, to go, oh, really? Wow, that must have been really awful. But he doesn't go to Spain. Instead, he is elected the abbot of a monastery in Brittany. Mm. And this is his way out. So he escapes his enemies uh, by becoming um, the abbot of a monastery called St. Gildas sometime in the late 1120s. Mm -hmm. So that is where he decides to go. He's leaving the borders of France. Um, he's a bit safer in Brittany, he thinks. So he sets up uh, as the abbot of St. Gildas. But unfortunately, calamities follow him even to... It's <laughs> uh, the title <laughs> of the book. You... Do you, do you know the saying, if you meet if you meet one asshole, they're the asshole. If you meet only assholes, you're the asshole. Yeah, well, I feel Abelard might be a, a regular contributor to the Reddit thread, am I the asshole? <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, um, I think actually Abelard might be in the right. So he arrives in St. Gildas and he discovers that these monks are not living the life they should be living. As a problem around monks at that time too many dishes on the table yeah yeah well so in this case they have prostitutes they have sons oh. uh, they have living concubines um, and also the local count is taking all the land of the monastery so it has no money he can't pay anyone and so he decides he wants to try and reform this monastery uh, but it doesn't go very well we're told that uh, the monks are so angry at his attempt to reform them, they try and assassinate Oh, him. well, that's one that's not happened yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, he, it gets so bad, in fact, that he has to leave the monastery and live in a little house beside the monastery. <laughs> um, and so he's not having a good time of it at St Gildas. He rejects some monks. He managed to get some of the worst offenders out of the monastery mm -hmm. uh, using, using some of his political skills. But then he says it was terrible because the people who were left were even worse <laughs> than the people I'd thrown out. Um, and so he's not having a good time of it at St Gildas. Um, part of this could be because it doesn't seem that, uh, well being a Breton, it doesn't seem that Peter Abelard could actually speak Breton. So I was actually going to ask you that, um, because obviously political uh, country boundaries at the time are often decided by violence rather than any shared uh, traits or languages. Uh, but did you know, it is the case that uh, Brittany speaks a different language from where he has been for most of his life? 
Yes, yeah, and it's not very clear that he can speak it. So, for instance, you were told that uh, the local people didn't seem to like him, mm-hmm. and this could be because they had no idea what he was saying. Yeah. So, presumably, he's communicating with the monks in Latin, mm-hmm. which he can obviously speak fluently, which the monks probably could speak as well. Uh, but there might be here, again, an underlying um, political current. Right? He is someone who is very... He's not French, but he's Francophone, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's coming into this very remote coastal monastery, which is still very... Breton, it's very speaking Breton, it's culturally uh-huh. Bretonic. But the calamities do not just occur to Abelard at this moment because Heloise also has a calamity. Ah, so that was going to be my other question, which is what is happening to Heloise? So she's been in the nunnery for all this time, um, and she's even managed to actually be quite successful. By the time um, Abelard is made abbot of St. Gildas, she has become uh, the abbess of her nunnery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but calamity occurs on her because St. Denis which is nearby, remember, decides to take the land. So they basically oh. do some legal shenanigans to eject the nuns from the nunnery and they're left to just like wander the world. Uh-huh. But of course, Abelard still has access to the paraclete, which he's not using anymore. He's, mm-hmm. he's left the school. And so he decides he wants to give it to Heloise. And that's okay. what he does. He manages to um, transfer the ownership to Heloise. And so Heloise and the remaining nuns move to the paraclete sometime around 1129, 1130, mm-hmm. where they set up a nunnery in his old school. And it's actually very, very successful. Um, so by the time of Heloise's death in the mid-1160s, uh, they have no less than six daughter houses. And it is a very, very famous place in the local community where people will come. So they're very, very successful. And at this moment is pretty much where his autobiography ends, with him in St Gildas suffering with these <laughs> monks, Eloise establishing what would later become this very, very famous nunnery. Uh, so now the question, right, so it's, it's, his book has ended, but his life is not. Yeah. The question I would like to think about a bit is, what is the purpose of this book? Right. Why has it been written? Uh, to get out of the monastery? Yes. <laughs> because it's actually very unusual for someone to write an autobiography in the 12th mm-hmm. century. I mean, there are instances, Boethius writes one, St. Augustine writes one, um, but it's not a usual thing. People don't, aren't going about writing autobiographies. This autobiography is written in the form of a letter mm-hmm. to an unnamed friend. Um, it's not clear who the friend was. It, it could be a literary device to write it. Some people have argued that it was a letter written to Heloise because he wanted to update her. I think this is unlikely uh, just because he talks so much about Heloise in the book. Um, it would seem kind of like, so at one point he quotes extensively from her, which seems like a weird thing to do Yeah. if, <laughs> if you're writing it. Uh, now, it's true that she has sent it. She does read it because in later letters she will complain about him miss interpreting action she's done uh-huh. in the autobiography at certain points. So she does read it. The theory is that he is writing it basically as a way to get out of the monastery of St. Gildas. So he's sending it as an autobiography off to Paris, off to famous monasteries, so that people will go, wow, Abelard has had such a hard life and this is an awful place he's being sent to. We should get him out. And it basically works. Uh, within a couple of years, by latest, 1133, he's no longer the abbot of St. Gildas and he's back in Paris. This is being written, it seems, as a bit of a tract for him to get out of his awful posting in St. Gildas. It's a CV. It's a resume. Yeah. <laughs> it's a resume which also counteracts a lot of the claims that 
that people are making the uh-huh. insulin, right? So when you think about that, it makes sense that a lot of these things are done as like, oh, it's intellectual. It was just a joke. Right. Oh, um, it wasn't, they were misrepresenting what I'm saying. Right. And the things that he can't fight against, so for instance, his, his love affair with Heloise, this castration now becomes this defining, oh, I changed I my ways. It was a punishment. I've been punished. You don't need to punish me anymore. When we see it in that light, a lot of the, the kind of weird ways of framing a lot of these debates, I think, make a lot more sense. I suppose it also means that the attitude we should take to the text in terms of how what how close it is to the truth is, like, if, if you're trying to essentially promote yourself, you're trying to answer things people said about you, well, I mean, he may have done some of the things they said he didn't do. Yeah, so an example of this might actually be his affair with Eloise, mm-hmm. which in the autobiography, he is initiating everything. Mm-hmm. Like she beca- so this is one of the reasons why people thought she was so young. She seems so passive. Mm-hmm. It should be remembered, by the time he comes to write it, she is an established abbess mm-hmm. who's widely respected. She had a lot to lose from the idea that she was purposefully seeking out sexual relations with her tutor. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that the the fact that Heloise in the narrative is so passive toward the relationship might in fact be an example of Abelard kind of re-emphasizing the truth so as not to get Heloise involved in scandal. But I have a question that uh, is the kind of thing that if, if he was writing this today might be seen as something terrible, but I guess at the time, maybe not. What happened to the son? Oh, we don't really know. He definitely lives into adulthood. Uh-huh. We know this because Heloise writes a letter at some point where he mentions him. Um, he may have become involved in the church as well. Mm-hmm. There is a man with a similar name who is recorded as an abbot uh, later on in the 1150s. So we don't even know, because both his parents end up in places where one does not raise children. But I guess at the time, yeah. he would be unlikely to have been raised by his parents directly. Yeah, and they seem to have been raised by his extended family. Mm -hmm. It should also be thought that um, actually people with children being in monasteries wasn't necessarily unusual. Mm -hmm. So both of Abelard's parents, for instance, join a monastery. Um, It's kind of seen as like a retirement house at the time. So Uh you're particularly pious, your children have left the nest, you might join a monastery Mm -hmm. as a way to to, to ensure a better life. So it wasn't necessarily uncommon mm-hmm. for parents it definitely uncommon for parents of a newly born child to do mm-hmm. it but not necessarily uncommon for uh, children to have parents in in monasteries but you're right they're not the so in St Gildas they are doing that but they're not meant to be <laughs> uh, raising children in the monastery uh-huh. it works out for St uh, for for Abelard at least in the short term the next part of his life we don't know actually that much about because mm-hmm. our main source for the life of both Heloise and Abelard come from the autobiography okay he teaches in Paris uh, from 1133 to about 1140. Um, and in 1140, he, um, I suppose to use modern vernacular, he gets cancelled again. Ah. It does read a bit like a, a, a cancellation because what happens is he publishes yet another book uh-huh. on theology. Um, and a man called William St. Thierry reads it and thinks that, again, he has written heresy. And so composes a book called Disputato Adveris Peterum Abelardum and sends it to the great reformer, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux reads it and thinks, wow, this is awful. And then around the same time, a former friend of Abelard's breaks with him, mm. thinking again that his theology is a danger to the church. And this former friend, a man called Thomas of Moringay, writes the Capitulum Herasum XIV, which is 
purported to contain 14 heresies this former friend has heard Abelard say, and also sends it to St. Bernard of Clermont. Mm-hmm. St. Bernard takes these two, turns it into a letter where he lists 19 heresies oh. he thinks Abelard is guilty it's of. Growing. And sends it off. Yes, sends it off to the bishops and the Pope. Mm. And so we can see here there's this like development very quickly mm-hmm. of various different people feeding on each other mm-hmm. and creating this, this list of heresies. Abelard thinks this is um, this is slander. Mm-hmm. He accuses St. Bernard of Claveau of slander. And there is a big church council that takes place in June 1140 in the city of Sens. And Abelard says, if I've actually committed heresy, Bernard, you should accuse me there. Don't go behind my back mm-hmm. writing these letters. Doesn't go well for Abelard. <laughs> St. Bernard of Claveau is a very big deal. He's personal friends with the Pope. Mm-hmm. He arrives at the council early. He takes all the bishops in and tells him his case and says, look, look, Abelard's going to try his quick words. Don't listen to him. The bishops agree and condemn him before Abelard even arrives. Ah. So by the time Abelard arrives in the city, it's already a done deal. Abelard is given the ultimatum. You can either say, yes, repent for your heresy. So instead, Abelard declares, actually, I'm not even going to enter the council. I want to go to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a clever political move on Abelard's point, because... It's a fait accompli at this point. His only recourse is, well, I'll kick it down the line. I want to actually take the Pope. However, unfortunately, by this time, Abelard's health is failing. He arrives at the great uh, monastery of Cluny, uh, where he stays for a while to recover his health. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, news arrives to him that the Pope has already heard his case and condemned him for heresy Ah. and says he is no longer allowed to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, But the abbot of Cluny, a man called Peter the Venerable agrees to allow for Abelard to stay there for the rest of his life, which he does. And uh, Peter Abelard will die on the 21st of April, 1142. So this is something that happens much later in his life when he's an older man. Yeah, yeah. So he's born in 1079. So he's in this period, what, he's exactly. 60s. And he, he carried the calamities keep on going. Twice condemned for heresy, once by the Pope. Attempted assassination, castration, and treason. <laughs> yes, he definitely has. At least to his telling, there's calamities. None of it was, well, apart from the castration, none of it had just caused. The rest was just his enemies talking against him. Uh, yeah, so he has quite a calamitous life. So as I say, I think your long trip to the US and catching cold <laughs> is nothing compared <laughs> to the travails <laughs> of Peter Adler. That's certainly true. It ends kind of sweetly, I suppose, because Heloise requests for his body to be returned to her, uh, to which Peter the Venerable agrees to, um, and uh, the body is sent back to the paraclete, uh, where he's buried, reburied, um, and when Heloise dies, she's buried mm. next to him. So in the end, their, their kind of blood story carries on all through their life. Yes, yeah, yeah, and they continue sending letters to each mm-hmm. other, where they very clearly love each other. Uh, to the end of their lives. I mean, maybe there's uh, relationship advice there. Don't see each other for most of your relationship. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they are a, a great testament to uh, how long-distance relationships can work, <laughs> but as long as one of you is castrated. And you're both locked in religious institutions. Mm. Yes. So there's really a lesson there for modern millennials. <laughs> so what I thought we could do today, Will, is actually do a speaking to the dead first, And actually, Peter the Venerable gives us an account of the final days of Abelard. So I thought we could actually end this episode with an account 
of the death of one of our guests. Ah, okay. So almost an obituary or an epitaph for the end of the episode. I've been Doug Rooney. And I've been Will Stafford. And thank you very much for listening to us today. Where can people find us, Douglas? Well, you can find us on Twitter at dead underscore speaking. Please follow us there for all the latest updates. And you can find our podcasts on all the places you find your podcasts, such as iTunes, Spotify, and so on. Please rate and review us because it really does help other people find the show. Well, I'll see you next month. He lived with us for quite some time, an upright and straightforward man, fearing God and shunning evil, devoting his remaining days to God. When the disease of his skin became worse and he developed other ailments as well, I sent him for some rest to our priory near Chalons. The climate there is pleasant and I thought the place would suit him. There he renewed his old studies, at least so far as his health would permit always bending over his books, never letting a moment go by without either praying or reading or writing or composition, as was said of Gregory the Great. And there is where the good angel came upon him, in the midst of his holy work, and he found him, not asleep, as are so many, but alert and wide awake. He found him truly wide awake, and he called him to the wedding feast that is eternal life, as a wise, not a foolish, virgin, for he took with him a lamp full of oil, that is, a conscience filled with the testimony of his holy life. As he came to discharge the common debt of mortal beings, his sickness became worse and brought him quickly to the end. Then, how he made his profession of faith, and then his confession of sins, with piety, devotion, and a true Catholic spirit, how he commanded his body and soul to him, both and forever in faith. To all of this his brothers in religion can bear witness. And so, my revered, my dearest sister in the Lord, this man to whom you clung after your marriage in the flesh with the stronger, finer bonds of divine love, your partner and your guide throughout your long service to God, God now enfolds in his presence in place of you as another you, and he keeps him there for you until the coming of the Lord, and the voice of the archangel, and a trumpet blast that signalled the descent of God from heaven, when through grace he will be restored to you again. Mm-hmm.